0: this isn't a short journey I think building a business is a really long and hard but incredibly deeply rewarding experience we're still really really on in this journey there's such a long way to go so I I, I guess I don't stop too often and think about what we've achieved to date because my to-do list is still so long and my focus is very firmly fixed on uh, the future.
1: Everyone, you're listening to People Building Businesses, the podcast from YBF Ventures. If you're not aware of YBF, we run a tech and innovation hub and co working spaces in Melbourne and Sydney. We help startups to scale, scale up to succeed, and corporates to innovate. You can find out more at ybfventures.com. Our guest on this episode is Hannah Spilva, co founder and CEO of Australian company Lovely, that's spelled L V L Y. Lovely has been dubbed the Uber of gift giving. That's a big title to bestow. It's the only Australian personalized gifting service, and it offers same-day delivery in Sydney, Melbourne, Brisbane, and Adelaide. They've had an amazing year amassing sales in a region of 3.5 million, and I might get that number wrong. It could be north of that. (laughs) To find out about how they've grown, we'll chat to Hannah very soon. But first, if you want to subscribe, you can find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, YouTube, and Google Podcasts. If you have any feedback or potential guests, send us a message at peoplebuildingbusinesses at ybfventures.com. Now, for the fun part, let's talk to Hannah. Hannah, welcome to the podcast.
0: Thanks. Thanks for having me here today.
1: This is the first time that we've actually met, so I'm pretty glad that you're here because I've actually used Lovely in the past, um, and I sort of I know the early stages of the company from following various news media outlets year on year, um, but what I don't know about is about Hannah, the person. So, could you start maybe by just talking about where you grew up and what your ch- early childhood was like?
0: Sure thing. Uh, well, I spent my childhood on the opposite side of the world. So, I grew up in the UK. Um, I'd say I had a pretty normal, fun, loving childhood. Um, my, I, I definitely grew up in a pretty entrepreneurial household. I saw my dad from a very young age starting and failing and eventually succeeding with lots of businesses. So I kind of got the feeling that sort of that entrepreneurialism was maybe in there from quite early on. Um, And I definitely grew up with an overwhelming desire to do my own thing Mm -hmm. and build a business, but I just for a very long time had absolutely no idea what that would be. Um, so I graduated. Once I'd graduated from school, I decided that oh, I wanted to work in the creative industry. I'd always been a pretty creative child, uh, always coming up with different ideas for businesses and things that I could do to make money so I did a marketing degree and as soon as I graduated pretty much fell into the world of advertising Mm -hmm. um, and loved it. I was so passionate about working in the advertising world and that eventually was what led me to living in Australia. I was working for a global network called McCann Ericsson. I was working on lots of big retail brands in the digital space at the time. um, Brands like Adidas, Nike, uh, over here I was working on Kmart and David Jones. And, and yeah, that's essentially what landed me in Sydney. I had the opportunity to head up a digital um, agency for McCann Ericsson in Sydney. I jumped at the chance. Australia had always been a place I'd wanted to travel to. Really interesting. Yeah, from I reckon from about the age of 15 wow. I had this... Um, I had this urge to come and live on the other side of the world. I'd never been here before. I didn't have family here, so I cannot explain why. <laughs> Maybe I'd been so watching. You,
1: you jumped here with, with no one that you knew, with nothing, with no plan B, basically. No plan B, in.
0: no plan B. I just wanted to come to Australia, and I had always envisaged that one day perhaps my career would be the stepping stone to get me here, and eventually that's kind of what happened. Um, so McCann Erickson gave me the opportunity to move out to Sydney, to head up a digital agency for them out here, which I did. Um, That eventually um, led to me joining an agency, which back then was called Visual Jazz, now called Isobar, one of Australia's uh, leading digital agencies. And it was there I met my business partner, Verity. So we were colleagues for probably five years before we started talking about launching Lovely. We both had sort of similar experience in that we had worked in advertising all our lives. We focused on um, sort of digital strategy and digital creative. We helped uh, David Jones transform their business from a traditional bricks and mortar into omni-channel retailer. So we were very passionate about the same kind of things. Um, But luckily for us, we had very different and complementary skill sets. So Verity at the time was heading up client services at Isobar. I was strategy director um, and together we just always had a brilliant working dynamic and it was probably five years into our relationship um, as colleagues that we started realizing that we both had this mutual desire to start our own thing and I guess that's where um, the idea for Lovely was was born.
1: I have so many questions as a follow-up to what you just said. So maybe I'll start with, uh, we're at the top. You know, you, you've had a successful career, even ending up as you said, strategy director at isobar and to then go from being such a successful person in one field to then jumping out and starting your own business what was that experience like um i must have imagined that it must have been like starting from ground zero again being an entrepreneur
0: yeah it's terrifying it's absolutely starting from ground zero and i i look back and i'm so grateful for my level of naivety at the time about how hard it would be because if i knew then What I know now, I'm not sure I'd have been brave enough to take the leap of faith, but I'm so glad that I did. So yeah, I mean, you're literally starting from ground zero, you're learning everything on the fly. If you've never run a business before, and you're essentially bootstrapping it yourself. Um, you're learning how to run every single function of that business. So Verity and I knew nothing about flowers. We knew nothing about logistics. We knew nothing really about managing, um, and, and operating a P and L. So we had to upskill very, very quickly.
1: Sure. So lovely started as an, uh, an idea where you would deliver, uh, flowers to people who order online, simple enough idea, but sounds difficult from an execution perspective What were the early days of lovely, like dealing with that side of things
0: mm mm-hmm. The early day, I mean, there were heaps of fun, you know. At yeah. the time, they felt so hard. But looking back now, you know, your problems get bigger as your business gets bigger. So actually, in hindsight, we had so much fun setting up Lovely. Like all good startups, we were operating out of Verity's kitchen from home. There was just the two of us. We learned how to make flower arrangements. We were getting out in the car, delivering things ourselves. And we look back and, you know, quite frankly, it was a shambles. And it's amazing that we managed to get from where it where it was then to where it is now. But there's no better way um, as an entrepreneur and a founder to really understand your business than starting um, from the ground up, and and that's exactly what we did. So I'm so I'm so grateful that we had to start where we did because it set us in really good stead.
1: And what was the genesis of the idea? Who came up with the original idea of Lovely, and what was the spark for that one?
0: There was a few influences looking back. It wasn't it wasn't one light bulb moment. There was a couple of things that sort of contributed to Lovely um, becoming a thing. The First was that, as I said, both Verity and I had this desire to build a business. Personally, I'd always wanted the challenge of building a brand from the ground up. I've always, coming from advertising, I've always been really passionate about branding and the power of brands. So that was something that I really wanted to pursue. Verity had seen an opportunity with uh, with flowers in terms of there being a gap in the market to do something innovative with flowers, and I think you know, like, like, like the perfect storm really it also happened at a time where I was incredibly homesick living on the other side of the world from Mm -hmm. friends and family I was looking for ways to send affordable gifts back to my mum and my sisters in the UK to let them know I was thinking of them and I was so underwhelmed with what was available Um, you look at some of the big players in the in the flower industry and the products are pretty cliched and they're pretty expensive and I think that was absolutely a contributing factor um, and influence in one of the reasons why we kind of came up with this idea for affordable, personalized, everyday gifting and flowers. Um, but brand was always going to be a really strong component of that idea.
1: Is it a, Was it a saturated market when you began looking into this at the start?
0: Absolutely not. I yeah. think w- what's really interesting about the flower industry is there's been so little innovation in this category for decades. So typically what you'll see once you start digging beneath the surface is at the moment there's I would say two to three significant players in this industry in Australia. And then at the other end of the um, spectrum, you've got, a, you've got a pretty high number of small, local, independent florists, but they either may not have an online presence or if they do, they will deliver to a pretty small geographical area. So when we looked at that landscape, we kind of said there's a huge opportunity here for um, a disruptive brand to come in and offer a new style of national flower and gifting delivery service.
1: So it sounds like you and Verity hit it off really, really well as co-founders back in the early days. What were some of the signs that the two of you would be compatible as co-founders? Was it obvious from the start that you would end up going into business together or doing something together?
0: No, it wasn't obvious from the start that we'd end up building a business together, but I think it was pretty obvious from the start that we were a great team, mm. um, so I think we're very lucky that we almost had that sort of practice run working in an agency together across those five years. Really understanding what each other's skill sets were, we became friends outside of work. We even we even shared a brief stint as housemates, so we re- we knew each other really well. Um, but of course starting a business is a totally different beast. So you're obviously going to be faced with unexpected challenges. And and like all co-founders, we've had to navigate some really difficult things. But ultimately navigating those things together has only made our relationship stronger and the business better because of it.
1: What were some of those difficult things if you don't mind sharing? No,
0: sure. It's I always mean, interesting to, to we, dig we into that. We always talk generic. openly about the, the, some of the most difficult challenges. You know, One of the first things was at the, at the time when we launched the business, um, I, because of my visa being from the UK, I couldn't jump into the business full time, whereas Verity could jump, jump into the business full time. So immediately we had to navigate this uh, situation where Vaz was going to be spending, you know, at least five days a week in the business. I was going to be spending two to three days a week in the business um, whilst maintaining an additional part-time job. But as 50-50 shareholders in a business, instantly that creates this kind of inequality in terms of hours and effort that you're putting in. And the way that we navigated that is, I I think, pretty unique, but it, it worked for us. So we essentially salary shared. So everything I was earning from my part job, part time job, I essentially shared with theirs wow. So that it felt that even though I wasn't able to put as much time into the business at her as her in those early days, we were kind of leveling the playing field in a slightly different way.
1: That's incredible. That's that's a lot of trust to have in your co-founder on both sides of the coin.
0: I think it just worked. And I think we're lucky that we, we already had that trusting relationship there. So it didn't actually feel like a big deal.
1: So you were still working in Isobar when... Lovely launched in December 2014, uh, Correct, and you only yeah. left ISOBAR in, in May 2016. Correct. Was that because of the visa issue, or was that because of other factors?
0: No, it was purely to do with it was purely to do with legalities around yeah, sure. the, the the visa um, that I was on at the time. So from my perspective, I couldn't wait to jump into Lovely full time, um, and so over the course of um, that kind of year and a half, just spent half of my life pouring everything into Lovely and the other half of my life essentially earning a wage that I could share with Vez.
1: And how were the hours like for you during that period? Because it's, it sounds like Vez was uh, full, all in into Lovely at that point in time, yep. but you were still juggling two jobs and um, you know, as, as a founder, you must have also dedicated a lot of time to Lovely on top of your part-time yep. job. So how did you juggle the two of them effectively?
0: I mean, it was hard. I, I think the thing, neither Vez or, not, Vez or I have ever been scared of hard work. We work pretty long hours um, in agency world anyway. But I think for me, the challenge was the mental gymnastics of constantly jumping between two completely different roles. That was challenging. I had a big job at Isobar, So when I was at Isobar, I was, you know, 100% in that. And then I'd need to shift gears the next day or even before or after um, I started and finished a day at Isobar because quite frequently, especially through busy periods, Vas and I would be catching up in the morning first thing at the flower markets before I'd go to Isobar, and equally in the evening, if we'd had a busy day of sales, I'd be going around to Verity's house after work to help her pick and pack and, and get boxes ready for the next day. So it was a huge juggling act.
1: For anyone looking to to figure out how to launch a new startup while they're still in a full-time job looking back do you have any advice for them because a lot of people are in that position where you know they've got a stable career but they also want to jump out it seems like you've done that pretty well so looking back any any piece of advice for people thinking about doing that
0: look i my advice would always be if you can jump in full-time to absolutely do do that yeah because ultimately you get out what you put in and that's like anything in life i think We were incredibly fortunate that there were two of us. That's one of the massive bonuses of having a co-founder is that if one of you can be there full time and the other one can't, the business is still going to have a certain degree of momentum. But I think both Vaz and I would acknowledge that the time the business has grown most quickly and performed most well is when we're both in the business and pouring everything into it.
1: Sure. And what did it feel like when you finally were able to jump into Lovely Full Time? Was that a big change for you?
0: Yeah, it was, a, it was a massive relief in a way. It was it was a massive relief mentally just to be able to pour all of my time and energy into one thing. Um, and I think that, that focus changes everything. And I think it was really the start of lovely changing gears pretty rapidly from being what was a bit of a, a lifestyle business into something which is now a truly scalable business.
1: So... I understand that you bootstrap the company from the start. Not an easy thing to do given a delivery, a physical company uh, doing physical things. So, yeah. uh, I don't even know where to start with this one. What was it like bootstrapping a company from the ground up? Like, was it what were the difficulties of doing that?
0: Well, it's difficult. I mean, it's it's hard because cash is always time, yeah. right? So Verity and I have bootstrapped it ourselves to, to this date. In fact, wow. So, but but I actually think it's a blessing because it sharpens your focus from day one on the financials. And everybody knows that you know if you get your cash flow wrong, it's the number one reason why small businesses fail. And for us, that that razor sharp focus on the financials from day one has actually set us in incredibly good stead. Uh, to scale and be- and break even and become profitable, because a lot of the feedback I get now <laughs> now as we're starting to talk to potential investors um, and bringing on advisors. Um- on board is they can't believe that a business at our stage looking at our financials when I share the P&L they can't believe how far we've come with so little and what we've achieved wow and I I credit that to our to our focus um, on the financials from the early days and and just having to be creative and do a lot a lot of growth with not very much um, financial firepower behind us
1: that's such a different way of looking at growing a business because in this day and age you know there's so much hype around startups there's so much hype around Oh, I've got my first venture funding or, you know, I've raised five million, but you seem to have been able to do that without any investment dollars at all, which is quite a fantastic feat, to be honest.
0: Well, yeah, I think, I, but I, you know, I think at the same time, we're now at a stage where to level up and really continue to drive that 100% year on year growth. We, we are now at a crossroads where we, we are seeking investment to continue to do that. So I believe that Verity and I have done um, a pretty good job of driving growth and getting the business to where it is with the with the, um, with the backing that we had access to. But now it's really about accelerating that growth. And absolutely, we'll need external capital to do that.
1: Awesome. So we'll touch on the fundraising part um slightly later on in the podcast but uh, i wanted to maybe wind the clock back a bit and i understand that in the early days you actually drove around to each customer's home
0: we did to deliver the
1: flowers we did what an experience we were mad that's crazy <laughs> i mean how do you do that while also juggling the strategy of the business and the finance and all the other things that's incredible
0: well, I think that's the problem, right, is you realise pretty quickly that you, you can't effectively juggle all of those things and drive <laughs> yeah, forward, sure. yeah. you know, the, the strategic growth of the business. You don't have 30 hours in a day. Quite literally. So um, that, that's why I look back and say, you know, it was, it was madness. But actually, you know, funnily enough, even now on big occasions, Verity and I, when we get the opportunity, we'll carve out some time to still go and deliver gifts to customers because ultimately what better way to really understand who your customers are and really understand the impact that our business is having on those people's lives because we started this business not not to sell flowers but to make people happy to make people's day to spread joy to make people smile to help people connect in moments of celebration so it's actually incredible to get the opportunity to deliver Gifts and flowers from a business that you've built from the ground up, and really truly understand the impact that you're having on these people's lives and their days. So, whilst you know, looking back, it was madness. It's still nice to be able to do that from time to time.
1: Do you ever show up at a customer's door and go, "Hey, I'm I'm one of the founders of Lovely, and here's a delivery"?
0: <laughs> <laughs> no, I would never do that. Um, but um, no, but it's just it's just great to be able to truly see that reaction and that glint in their eye because. You know, truly when you think about it, getting a surprise gift or delivery of flowers from anybody has the potential to completely change your day and completely change your mood. So it's really special to feel like we're building a business that has the power to do that.
1: That's taking customer obsession to another level, hand delivering items to your customers. Have you ever learned anything or gleaned any new insights into your business from actually being there physically, delivering those gifts to customers? Has it changed some aspects of what you've done with the business?
0: Yeah, I mean, it changes a lot because it gives you a much deeper understanding of the challenges that your business has to solve. So ultimately, you know, logistics is a big part of our business. Delivering gifts ourselves gives us a lot more empathy for essentially what we're asking couriers and delivery drivers to do, to really understand the challenges of getting parcels and gifts from A to B. It's a really difficult job. So that enables us to better understand how we can provide training, tech and processes to make that experience easier and more seamless. And it also helps us to understand uh, how to provide better packaging or an experience from a customer's point of view to make sure that they're delighted when they when they receive what the recipient has sent them
1: so as you grow your business over time uh, obviously logistics is a huge part of what you're doing and although it's been great that you've been able to hand deliver gifts to some of your customers you've also had to figure out a way to to scale that Yep. so what was the process of scaling the log- logistics side of things like especially in a place here like australia where you know people like amazon haven't really cracked delivery uh within Australia itself. And the fact that you're able to do it on the same day, that's, to me, sounds like you have a, a pretty impressive uh, delivery or career network that you've established.
0: I think there isn't one solution. That I think the, the point is that there are many solutions and you have to figure out for your category and your business, what are the right combination of logistics solutions? I think if we were looking for just kind of, you know, one uh, silver bullet solution, we probably wouldn't be where we are now. And so for us in, in, the, in a same day capacity, so you mentioned we deliver same day across Adelaide, Brisbane, Sydney, and Melbourne, and we'll continue to roll that service out across all cities in Australia, but we've had a logistics partner on board for the last four years. Um, they're a, they're a, essentially an Uber-style model for, for the B2B world. So we, use, we now use them as a SaaS partner. They essentially manage um, the coordination of all of our deliveries but at the other end of that we've hired all of our own drivers so by hiring our own drivers it truly enables us to own that customer experience end-to-end we can train our drivers they understand um how how we want to approach customer service we can um, provide them with lovely uniforms and so that just again, it's because of that intense focus on how can we make this experience the best in Australia for our customers. But what we what we challenged ourselves with about eighteen months ago was how can we extend our our product and our service further, because we were getting requests constantly from customers who were using our service in a city and they wanted to send gifts further afield across Australia. So, we gave ourselves the challenge to basically deconstruct our product and figure out how we could send flowers via the mainstream postal network, which at the time we weren't sure we could figure out because obviously you're talking about a perishable good, they're very delicate. um, And... Our posies, if you haven't already seen them, all come delivered in a customised glass jar. So, our glass jars are kind of our trademark and they come with a label which can be personalised so you can put your name, nickname, or special message on it. Um, so, not only did we have the challenge of transporting flowers through the mail, but we also had a glass jar which naturally contained water to keep the flowers alive. So, the first thing we did was we went to speak to our customers and we said, Well, at a minimum, can we get rid of the glass? Can we just send the flowers? no no we love the jars keep the jars so we set about working with a team of specialists from around the world we worked with box engineers here in Australia we worked with flower packaging experts over in Holland and we essentially devised a packaging solution which would allow us to safely transport flowers through the mainstream mail um, safely transport the glass jars get rid of the water we're actually using um, a different type of uh, wrapping which allows the um, the stems to stay wet during transit and keeps the flowers alive up to five days so yeah about 18 months ago we rolled out a trial we handpicked uh, 20 I think it was customers from around Australia and we sort of said to them look we're trying to extend our product range so that we can uh, ship it nationally across Australia we don't know if this is going to work um, but would you participate in the trial the pro is you may get free flowers the con is they might arrive dead because we're not sure <laughs> yeah. if it's gonna work sure. but will you give us a shot um and every single one of the customers we asked said yeah absolutely and we got a 20 out of 20 strike rate and they arrived um in time so within 24 hours and wow. in great conditions so having done that trial we've rolled that product out um on a, on a national basis
1: that's amazing and what does what does that do to cost that amount of innovation in delivery of what your core product is
0: well I th- for us at a baseline it's it's added 20 percent to our sales which, merely by adding additional postcodes onto our website so we we haven't significantly invested in pushing the national message it's just something we've essentially quietly made available on our website and pushed through our social channels the cost in innovation itself was really time within the team, mainly, you know, obviously there's, uh, there's the physical cost of having the prototypes developed, um, for the packaging itself. But because we did most of the problem solving in house, the, the, the cost was really to us in terms of time and energy. So it was, it was a really cost effective way to scale our business, maintain our cost base. So we didn't add any, any, anything to our fixed cost, but you know expand our geographical range from four cities to Australia wide overnight
1: that's that's really that's a really cool story thank you for sharing that so f- what about the flower side of things how do you source your flowers and how do you then package it up in such a lovely pun intended <laughs> oh in such a lovely way is there a specific process that you go through to do that
0: yeah absolutely and it's really the core process within our whole business um so we've got an incredibly talented um series of florists so and so we've obviously got teams of florists that work across the four cities I've mentioned who are not only highly qualified but also trained in the love lovely aesthetic and lovely way of making a posy to make sure that everything's streamlined and that ultimately customers can send or receive flowers anywhere in Australia and they'll look the same um, when it comes to sourcing it was kind of pretty scary when we launched this business realizing that 40%, roughly about 40% of flowers bought and sold in Australia are imported from overseas. Mm. So that can be as far as uh, South America, South Africa. And these flowers could be in transit for up to two weeks at a time. So there's a huge carbon footprint associated with the transport of flowers from one side of the world to the other. And in addition to that, um, because of biosecurity risks and border control flowers are treated with a pretty nasty chemical called methyl bromide which um, is banned actually wow, in most okay. places in most places in the world and so when we started to really understand the environmental impact of the industry we were working in We decided that we wanted to focus on sourcing locally wherever we could. So we've been on this journey to develop what we're calling a paddock to posy approach, which is about supporting Australian growers buying locally wherever we can. Um, And that allows us to, A, make sure we've got fewer flower miles because our flowers are travelling less. Um, from a to b it means that there's less nasty chemicals used in the process and it also means that our customers are getting much fresher flowers because our buying cycle is so quick we buy a minimum three times a week it means that our customers are typically get typically getting flowers within one to two days of being picked as opposed to imported flowers where they may have been in transit for up to two weeks before they even arrive in the country that's
1: a long time unreal yeah you never know about how difficult it is to actually source a product until you hear it from people who've actually done it. So,
0: Well, there's, there's not just the sourcing of the product, but it's, made, it's sourcing the right the product. Right product. So, and I think that's, that's been the learning curve for us. Sourcing the product, sourcing any product, is pretty easy. But it, for us, our focus has very much been on sourcing the right product, um, taking into consideration the environmental impact and ensuring always quality for our customers.
1: Awesome. So you started out as, uh, you know, with your background in advertising and digital media and digital strategy. Did you enter lovely, uh, with a particular strategy on on that side of things in mind, um, from a marketing perspective, at least, because from our, from our research, thanks to our amazing, uh, producer, Joe Harrington, (laughs) um, we understand that it took you two years before you spent a single dollar in advertising. Correct. What was the strategy there?
0: Uh, the strategy was: we'll do absolutely anything we can to make this business grow <laughs> with zero dollars. And, and look, I think we were really fortunate that that we had a background in marketing. That at the time we understood the power of social, the power of great content. We were also really at, lucky that we um, are creating a, a product that essentially always has. T- two customers really involved in any one transaction because you've got the gift buyer and also the gift mm-hmm. receiver. So for every customer you acquire, we're essentially acquiring two sets of Bibles. And because the nature of flowers is they're pretty and people love receiving surprise gifts through the post, what we found very early on is people would create their own content, share it on mm-hmm. our behalf. So that definitely helped build momentum. But I think we also got really lucky with... PR. So from the very early days, we were covered by Broadsheet, Urban List, Concrete Playground, and you could see straight away, uh, just looking at looking at our analytics and site traffic, that that helped create momentum and build enormous spikes in traffic. One of the strategic initiatives that we that we tried to execute from day one was collaborations. So we have always had a focus on collaborating with on-trend Australian brands who share a similar set of values, who have a really strong social conscience. So from day one, we were collaborating with brands like Thank You, who we've actually just done our second collaboration with four years later. Awesome. And, and that was that was intentionally to help introduce Lovely to an additional audience, but also to help introduce their brand to our audience. And that worked incredibly well.
1: There seems to be an alignment of values there as well with a brand like Thank You and and Lovely.
0: And that's core to it. It, it, It's actually, we'll, we'll only collaborate with brands where there's a real core alignment of values and purpose and intent.
1: You were quoted somewhere saying that you get more out of paid search. Than social media, uh, is that is that right that you get more out of a, a dollar spent in paid search than you know over Instagram or Facebook or Twitter?
0: Well, I think, I mean, obviously paid search is so easy to track and measure. So what, what right. I would say is that we have a much clearer idea of our return on ad spend from investing in something like paid search. We made a strategic decision really early on that if we had limited marketing dollars, we were going to invest them in a channel where we knew for sure that there was going to be a return and that, and that ad spend would ultimately be profitable. So we're only now starting to invest across multiple channels to really understand how that return on ad spend changes across, um, across all of the digital mediums. But yeah, in the early days, we definitely lent on paid search pretty heavily uh, t- to drive growth.
1: And today, are you seeing one platform trump the other in terms of being able to drive engagement and sales? Um...
0: They all play completely different yeah. roles, um, and, and we've seen that from day one. So when it, when you're talking about brand engagement, social absolutely still has a huge role to play. Um, but if you know if you're looking at, at the top end of the funnel, if you're looking at acquisition, then absolutely when you're looking then at paid search and affiliates and retargeting, then you'll see you'll see a bigger conversion. So it it, it completely depends on the objective. Okay, cool.
1: Um, Really interesting because you obviously do have that experience and history, and um, I personally love your social media and your, your marketing. So Thank you. <laughs> um, when did sales for your company really start to take off? Was it when you switched to becoming full-time into Lovely, or was there a particular pivot point where you kind of went, okay, this is you know, getting really crazy and things are skyrocketing? Well, is, in, in other words, I guess to shorten things, was it linear growth over time, or was there a point where you experienced exponential growth?
0: It's definitely not linear. I mean, it's always been trending up, um, thankfully. (laughs) However, the nature of our business, because it's gift-giving, there's naturally certain times throughout the year where you're going to see rapid growth very quickly. So, for example, around Valentine's Day and Mother's Day and then again around Christmas. So what we typically see in our business is we'll have a month or a number of months where we, where we grow very, very quickly. So sales, you know, in the early days for around Valentine's Day, you could go from 200 sales on a business as usual day to maybe 2,000. Um, so being able to scale your business 10 times in, in, in a 24-hour window is a pretty difficult thing to do. But then typically what you see after Valentine's Day is naturally sales drop off, but they drop off to a higher level than what they were before. So it's always been trending upwards. But um, because of the, um, the nature of, of gift giving, you see these very big peaks and troughs throughout the year.
1: And how does a business like yours cope with that seasonal shift? Because I, I presume that it would involves some kind of prediction around the amount of flowers you need to source around the amount of, uh, you know, logistics you need to prep beforehand. <laughs> how, how do you, how do you plan for a spike like that? Like a 10 X spike overnight?
0: Well, we've definitely got better at it. Inevitably, we still get it wrong almost always, uh- <laughs> <laughs> So it's not easy, but, um, you know, I think, We've we've got four we've got nearly five years of experience under our belt now, so we are much more confident in our ability to forecast trends around those key gifting periods. So, um, a little bit of it is about how how much do we want to invest, and and how much are we really going to stretch our ta- ourselves to achieve enormous sales targets around these key periods, um, and then underneath that naturally it's about getting the right team in place. And so we around those key periods, it's 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 not uncommon to see our ta- our team scale up to kind of three or four times okay. its normal size over a very short period. By
1: team do you mean the drivers as well or the drivers,
0: yeah. the florists, the pick packers, the customer service staff. Um and um, but we now have the infrastructure and I guess the management layer across all of those divisions in place to truly to truly manage that scaling up and scaling down pretty quickly
1: any horror stories from the early days maybe uh when you first experienced your first spike
0: many 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 (laughs) horror stories and probably many many yet to many yet to be seen i think in the early days you know it was. Because we were literally running this business from Verity's house, there would be times where we literally, you know, we were kind of, we we kind of just wanted to turn the website off. We we just panicked so (laughs) much when those, when those orders started to scale and it was literally Vaz and I like printing them out at the speed of light. She'd be making posies, I'd be wrapping gifts. Loading them into the back of the car, and you literally just wanted to take the website offline. Um, and you know we've had lots of we've had lots of problems in the early days with gifts um, being dispatched to the wrong places or not not arriving there on time. But I think ultimately what we've learned is things will always go wrong, but it's how you deal with those problems and how you respond to consumers when things go wrong that really. Set you apart as a business. And in fact, you know, many times some of our unhappiest customers have been the customers that have left us the most glowing reviews once we've resolved a problem for them.
1: Have you created a framework on how to deal with the, these issues?
0: Yeah, I mean, absolutely, we have. The, and it all goes back to the core purpose of our business, which is to make people's day. So, like any company, we have terms and conditions and policies and refund procedures. And we have a customer service team who's very well versed on what the lovely response should be to a given number of scenarios. But ultimately what we say to them is if you have to break all of our own rules to make somebody's day and make that customer happy, do it. So that's really the the policy is we're in business to make people's day and make them happy figure out how to make that happen. It's all about the customer. It's all about the customer, yeah.
1: So we'll, we'll segue next into the technology side of things. Yep. So I think a lot of people who are customers of, of something like Lovely um, wouldn't necessarily know what's involved on the tech side of things. Yep. So could you talk us through what you've done on, on the technology side of Lovely to make things run so smoothly?
0: Sure. The technology is something that we're always working on and it's constantly evolving as you can imagine the tech five years ago looks very different to the tech now and in five years' time will look different again. I think we had to make a decision very early on because we were bootstrapping, we had limited cash flow that we needed to work really smart and essentially use off-the-shelf platform, hack hack together a tech stack with off-the-shelf solutions, which we did and we did pretty successfully. And although that has evolved over time, essentially we're still operating a business which, you know, we don't have custom built tech. We are using off the shelf e-commerce products hacked together in a way that works for our business. And that's set us in really good stead.
1: So stuff like Shopify or uh, e-commerce yeah, so, or whatever. Yeah,
0: exactly correct. Yeah, so we use WooCommerce at hmm. the moment. Um, and we've been on WooCommerce for the last three years. We've customized it heavily, front end and back end. And again, that, that creates its own set of challenges. Uh, But the the tech is something we're working on every single day as the business grows to streamline not just the experience for the customer, but importantly, to streamline operationally how the business is running at at the back end. And and importantly, how to uh, using tech to communicate with our customers in a really kind of time efficient way.
1: Sure. So you mentioned earlier, uh, and I guess this culminates in, in the next question. Um, that Lovely is ready to scale. You're now out in market fundraising for the first time ever in the history of your company. Uh, what was the What was the point where you and your co-founder went, it's time to raise money? Was there a clear sign that you needed to raise money?
0: There wasn't a clear sign. I think we were in the really fortunate position of, because, because we're we've passed break even, we're cash positive, you know, getting external capital isn't do or die for the business. But it was more about sitting down and sort of checking in on, is the vision for this business that we want to scale this, that we want it to expand not just in Australia but overseas or are we comfortable to kind of take a step back from that vision and say, you know what, we could run this as a lifestyle business, we can take some dividends, we can eventually probably step away from the business a bit. And I think, you know, Vaz and I immediately acknowledged that our vision hadn't changed. And in fact, we still absolutely were intent on scaling this business. We want to make it a household name in Australia and launch overseas.
1: What does growth look like for Lovely in the next few years?
0: Well, in the next sort of six to 12 months, it looks like rolling out our same day service in um, further cities across Australia and also testing, um, launching in New Zealand. And then above and beyond that, launching in an overseas market within the next 12, uh, sorry, in the next 18 months.
1: Yep, sure. Awesome. I always love a good growth story. <laughs> it's
0: exciting, but it's so yeah. daunting, right? There's, uh, there's so much work left to do oh on, and we're still so early on in our journey.
1: Well, I think the cool thing is other people have recognized the amazing work you're doing um, just off the top of my head, you were named Entrepreneur of the Year for VNT Women in Media Awards 2019. Yep, amazing achievement. And Thank you. Lovely was in the top 50 small business leaders in 2019. Yes, so that's yeah. a lot of growth to be to be proud of. Um, yeah. yeah, amazing.
0: Thank you. Yeah, I think well, look, we're we're chuffed, and it's nice for the whole. It's it's validation for the whole team, and it's something that we've celebrated as a team so it's definitely prompted us to kind of pause, take a moment, look at what we're doing. I think the thing that we're all excited about though is, you know, above the scaling and the tech and the investment, the the, the thing that excites and unites the whole team is that we are making people's days a bit better and a bit brighter and that's honestly what excites us and gets us out of bed every morning is that ability to kind of help influence somebody who's having potentially a really shitty day and make them leave the office smiling at the end of it. And that feels really good. And in addition to that, I think creating a brand that people genuinely engage with and love. We hired an external agency recently to do some customer research and um, they told us that we have a net promoter score of 87, which is pretty pretty amazing it's almost
1: impossible to it's pretty
0: it's pretty amazing (laughs) we 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 couldn't quite believe it when they told us we we, and i think that's something that makes us proud because it kind of goes back to one of the reasons that Vaz and i started this business right was to build a brand from the ground up to build a brand that people would love and and that's the thing that makes me proud is you know whether or not this business um scales you know just into one one additional market or ten additional markets. The thing that I think we can always walk away and be proud of is that we definitely achieved our ambition to create a brand that people would love and would make people smile. Um, I think you know the, the, the cheeky and playful nature of the copy has been has has played a big role in that. When you're sending jars out that say "You lovely fucker" on them, <laughs> it's 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 difficult it's difficult not to get a chuckle from somebody when they receive that. <laughs>
1: Uh, Last question before we wrap up. If someone wants to learn more about Lovely, whether it's a customer or an investor or, you know, just someone who's curious uh, about what you do, what should they do to get in touch or learn more?
0: They should just hit me up for a coffee. I love talking about Lovely. (laughs) (laughs) They should get in touch at hannahatlovely.com.au. I'd love to chat to them.
1: Awesome. Hannah, thank you for being on the podcast. It was really great speaking to you.
0: Pleasure. Thank you.